Yeah, no, I, I think Congo is a great wrestler. I just think Rad Russian has his number. Yeah, but Rad Russian has a lot of abandonment issues. Uh-oh, it looks like the intermission is over. We better head back. Let me tell you something! Let me tell you something. 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 Well, let me tell you something. 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 Let me tell you something, man. Welcome to the latest episode of Let Me Tell You Something. It's the second part in our little movie uh, creation of our minds. By our, by us, I mean myself, Lorcan Mullen, and with me as always is the Miz to my Morrison, the Joel Cohen to my Ethan Cohen, the Saoirse Ronan to my Greta Gerwig, Mr. Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing today, mate? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too bad. Apart um, from a creative standpoint, I don't think we'll necessarily reach those lofty heights. But mm. let's see how we get on. It's good to aim high. Maybe, maybe 2021, Ms. Morrison is uh, achievable. <laughs> no, they're doing their best. Doing what they can. They're doing what they're told to have done. So, what we're going to be talking about <clears throat> this week is the second part of our ongoing series where we are working out how to write up a, and hopefully eventually a full-length film screenplay based around the Monday Night Wars. I would recommend you listen to the previous episode. It's one of our, I think it's our second most listened to episode already in the whole run of the show. It might have already been taken since then. So it's obviously a concept that's taking off with some people. I think it's because it's a film a lot of wrestling fans want to see. Not necessarily yeah. our version of it, but it's something that gets people excited to even think about a hypothetical of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a quick rundown of the final notes that we had on it. Of uh, story, where we were as far as story beats go. We'll make a few possible revisions to those story beats and then see if we can figure out the rest of it right up to the end of the film. I've got a few Put ideas. Put some flesh on the skeleton. Yeah. I've got a few ideas, and we're going to go with it, see where it takes us. So, first of all, what I'm going to do is list where we were insofar as the story beat structure, okay? From start to around the middle. So this is where we have it going into this episode. We want to start off with some montage of the 80s, Potentially, not just WWF, but maybe showing the whole scene of wrestling and also maybe America in the 80s. The whole sense that that Reaganite Americana attitude was what contributed towards wrestling becoming so huge in the 1980s specifically. And Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan riding that crystal wave to the top. That will all be dependent theoretically on what rights you have, what you can recreate and what have you. But this film is never going to get made, so that's not really a concern. 
<laughs> then we go right into our opening scene of the film, which goes into what is the key relationship dynamic throughout the whole story, and that is Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff. And what we're working with is Eric Bischoff getting interviewed for a job in 1990 for the WWF, having it be just that point that the AWA is about to go under. I would suggest even maybe have it that the AWA has gone under like a few weeks before and Eric's desperately looking for a job. So that's a good way to get in. So we see Eric then spend the day with Vince McMahon. We had this one idea of them working out in the gym at one point to show Vince's obsession. And I was thinking actually that whilst Eric can't match him in the gym, maybe one thing that he can do, he can't match him for lifting weights, but he'll see a punching bag and he'll reveal that he's an ex-karate champion black belts. So yeah. it's a sign of these guys are both fighters, just in very different ways. That was one thing I was going to suggest we add on top of that. Well, um, sort of brawn over technique? Yeah, there's the idea, yeah, sort of something like that. Because Eric has to work his way into the system, whereas Vince just wants to bulldoze through everyone. Mm. Then we get what's going to be the key visual reference point in the film, which is the map, as we've got it written down, which is that Vince has a map of the whole of the United States, basically all of North America. And all across the map are all the different territories that were in existence when he bought the WWF from his dad in 1994. So you've seen Amarillo, Texas with the Funks, Dallas with the Von Eriks, Memphis with Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler, uh, California with the Sheik, Minnesota Florida. with Florida with Dusty Rhodes and, and everyone, um, Mid South with the um, with Bill Watts uh, and Mid Atlantic the Crockets, Stampede up in the north with uh, Stu Hart, and across nearly all of these territories now are big X's. Because they've all gone out of business. Except for Memphis and Mid-Atlantic, Jim Crockett, which is probably just about to go under. And have Vince talk a little bit about the time that he briefly owned that territory, but then lost it back to Ted Turner in mm. dispute over TV rights. And at the end of it, Eric doesn't get the job, and he gets a handshake on his way out. And you can see Eric despondent. Vince returning to his office, getting a phone call. It's Ted Turner. Vince, I'm in the wrestling business. And I won't. Ha I would suggest we don't have Vince say I'm in the entertainment business. I would have Vince just sort of dumbfounded for a moment, like he doesn't know what to say. Okay. Um, I just want to go back slightly. I think we should make a point of. As Eric leaves uh, Titan Towers, like obviously that big monolith he's got, or wherever the interview was, um, uh, Eric's car shouldn't be a good car. Like, or it should look like it was a good car, but it's a little bit beat down, run down. Yeah, like in the exterior, it's very flashy, and then when he opens it, like maybe some fast food comes out the out the side of the car or something like that and it's a bit of a or like a, or like a couple of coffee cups because he's been desperately trying to yeah. like leap from place to place to latch onto something it's, yeah so there's a tatty interior on a sleek outside which is symbolic of what wcw eventually becomes so there we go um then we have 
Eric Bischoff in WCW whilst we're getting Vince dealing with the steroid trial. So this is going to be, I'm going to slightly suggest we jiggery-pokery this a little bit because one thing I've realised in our initial version of it is we are giving way too much credit to Vince Russo for the Attitude Era spawning. Like I said, one of my ideas yeah. would be that it's Vince Russo that tells Vince that takes Vince to an ECW show. I would actually say let's have it be Jim Ross that takes him to the ECW show and Vince Russo tags along. Because actually okay. I think a pivotal player in this film it'd be one of those roles that like Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been amazing at back in the day. A character that only shows up for like ten minutes in the whole film, but steals every scene they're in. Mm. And that would be Paul Heyman. So you put Paul Heyman at the three different points of the film. You have him in WCW with Eric Bischoff. That's where we come to Eric Bischoff a few years later. It's 1992-93. And they're doing a TV show roundup in the studio. And it's Eric Bischoff and Paul Heyman. Yeah. And then they get the news that Bill Watts has been fired. And they discuss amongst themselves where this needs to go. And so then you can have a little bit of their discussing their ideologies. And the implication maybe being that Paul Heyman wants to apply for the job but wouldn't, doesn't think he'd get it or something mm-hmm. like that. Whereas Eric does think he can get it. And then we would see Eric in the, take an interview. And one of the key things at that point, one of the, one of the recurring themes, the, the key word that I think should be throughout this whole film is wrestling. Not wrestling, wrestling. Could we and have the, it? Could we have it instead where, like, Paul's like, I don't know if they, these guys or the, the, the board would go along with like, what I think yeah. we should be doing. Yeah, but I also think Paul thinks he can play in any system. Maybe we should imply that Paul wants the job but assumes he won't get it. And Eric decides, what the fuck, it's not worth it. And maybe you can have Paul be a bit incredulous that he gets it. I mean, Paul's gone. By the time Eric gets the job. Again, this yeah. is one of those things where we're really messing about with history here. But So it, have Paul just be cynical. It's like, oh, I could do it, but they won't let me do it. Yeah, so I'm not going like, to bother applying. Something like that, maybe. Okay. Um, and then I would have... We have Vince. And I would have Vince be in this position where things aren't going as well as they were. Hulk Hogan isn't there anymore. And he's got these steroid trials coming. But he also says we need something new. Maybe have Vince get like be in a talking uh, with USA Network. And they say we need a new show. And then what I would have at this point. Is a montage of what Vince does. And you see that he covers everything. You see him in a boardroom. Talking about merchandising ideas. You see him in the music studio. Talking to the musician about what entrance music has got to be for this new guy. You see him in the marketing area. Looking at costume designs for Lex Luger. That's one of the key things you can see. That he really wants to push Lex Luger hard. So you get the red, white and blue. And he's also talking conceptually about what the show's got to be. And they come up with the idea for the, the, the logo. And then you see him going through the logos. Then you see him in the Manhattan Center. And you realize he's like a Broadway impresario saying, we're going to put these lights there. We're going to put those lights there. And you just see that this whole thing is Vince's vision. Vince is a true auteur. In every yeah. sense of the word is what you're putting across in that moment. And on top of that, he's still dealing with the trial. So you, you have whatever you say about Vince, Vince owns the the system he's in, whereas Eric is having to work within it. 
So then we see, uh, so then along the way we go to Vincent on trial. We can do a bit more about that. And meanwhile, we're having Bischoff trying to turn things around in WCW. And then you have him, like, literally in Walt Disney, in Disney Studios. You can make some jokes about wrestlers being around where there are kids. Remember, we had that idea of him being there and they um, there was a, a cheer and a and boo sign. And it has a cheer sign and Rick Rude comes out and Eric Bischoff's like, no, they're supposed to yeah. boo him. So originally, automatically there, you're seeing... Bischoff cannot get complete control out of everything compared to Vince. And then we see him, maybe him and Ric Flair in a, in a backlot area. And they see Hulk Hogan in the distance filming Thunder in Paradise. And we have that line, have you watched any of it? No. What do you think? He'll be looking for work. Yeah. And then they sign him. The next big bullet point we've got is that Hogan does turn up, but he does get a smattering of boos. Not all over the place, but there is some booing. And that's when you find that they say, this is wrestling territory. This isn't New York. People like their wrestling. This is horseman country. Uh, The next big story beat we've got is the first Nitro on the air. And also that Vince is preempted by the kennel show. And then you see Vince yes, turn on the, te- the dog show. I was thinking this actually. What you should have as Westminster Dog Show is they said, now make sure you tune in next week to Monday Night Raw when it comes back to see just what Lex Luger will do to try to gain Diesel's trust. And they're doing it in a really mocking voice because Lex Luger was literally part of the storyline at that moment with the yeah. Bulldog turning on Diesel. And, and Lex was literally involved in the SummerSlam 95 main event diesel king mabel match so they clearly wanted to plug him in there some way and then next thing you know he turns on nitro says something about oh they've got good lights because that's another thing we want to say about the presentation and everything and then he sees lex luger so there now we're starting to see where things are starting to fall apart the next thing we want with vince is that he goes on to the clicks bus and he's thought the start of the inmates running the asylum and vince is trying to snuff it out and they say, we want deals, we want this, we want that. And maybe you can have Vince at the end say, well, are you going to give them what they want? He says, they're more trouble than they're worth. That notion yeah. that Vince will ultimately not have that kind of trouble in there. But there are things that will ring true to him, you know? Then we have Hall and Nash meetings, Eric Bischoff on a trip to Japan where Bischoff's trying to wine and dine them, takes Hulk Hogan with them, and then they're there in like a Sky Dome box or something. And they see how crazy the crowd's going for this UWFI invasion angle. And they say, God, if only we could get Vince to agree to do something like that with us. He'll never do that. And then the idea Mm. starts to come. We'll have to... I think, obviously, because we're appealing to... Trying to appeal to the general audience, we'll have to make it, like, ham it up. Make it really obvious that it's an invading faction. Yeah, well, yeah. Because you know it could just be, like how the Hall and Nash just turned up and they were the outsiders in, in real life and everyone knew who they were. Yeah. The general audience might not get. Well, I was saying that they should that have them, they should have him in the, in the plane or something in, or in the airport baggage area or something. And he overhears someone saying, Oh, my kid was saying that, uh, Hulk Hogan, Razor Ramon and, and Diesel were all there. We said, what those WWF? Well, they, they're from that WWF. Mm. Then that can be, Wait a minute. And 
Then we have the rising of, of Nitro against the decline of Raw. Nitro winning the ratings war. Vince gets desperate, offers Brett a 20-year contract. Um, I, I know the timeline might not fit in real life, but I think we should have uh, a bit of TL Hopper um, in that Vin- Raw and Decline thing. It like can be part of a montage or something like that of, of him just, like, his ideas are really bad at this point. Although yeah. that kind of the problem is that comes after the bus ride, so maybe they should mention you've got a wrestling plumber, Vince, and a wrestling garbage man, all those all those sort of things. So that's kind oh. of what the click sort of strike is meant to be about, really. But I know where you're coming from. Uh, but yeah, he has to. He's doing everything, and he throws a twenty-year contract at Brett just to keep him. But things still aren't working out. The next few ones we've got, like, Bischoff is being an arsehole. That's kind of the, the overriding theme for Bischoff at this point. He's like, really can't believe what he's doing. Vince McMahon is flipping through a magazine and sees... Flipping through a Raw magazine. Maybe he's at, like, a dentist or something. And he slams it on the table and says, this is what the show should be. Because you can see, like, he flips it. There's a face. I remember, like, it's, like, bikini spreads and stuff like that. And also really blood, like, really nasty blood and stuff, and, like, a sensationalist Vic Venom headline or something like that. And he says, this is what the show should be. Who wrote this? Who is Vic Venom? And they say, uh, oh, it's actually, his name's Vince Vince. And bring in Russo. Russo throws a thousand ideas at him, and then we have him leave, and Vince literally take this big pile. You can have him walk in with a big pile of papers, and he's literally picking them up one after the other and putting them at Vince's idea, and, and we get, like, you know, he's saying... And it's the Undertaker's long-lost brother. And it turns out that they're siblings. And he set, and he slept with her wife. And, and then weirder and weirder ones. Yeah. And then you just see Vince pull out four of them. And then throw the rest in the bin after Bischoff's gone. And give one to each of the other guys to work with. Then we have this idea of the ships in the night moment. I think maybe that can come beforehand. Where Vince is really deciding he's got to do something. Uh, where we, we don't know whether Vince and Bischoff will meet or if they'll just see each other from a distance. Bischoff, that's the moment where he's saying to Hogan National Hall, I'm going to put him out of business. And that's also the I moment would say, where Vince takes a drive and goes to ECW. But go on. From a visual aesthetic, when they're in the airport, you could have Vince with... One of his guys is near him. And like one of Eric's guys is near Eric. And as they like see each other, or like ships in the night or just pass each other, you see the crowd around Vince's dude is pretty small compared to the crowd around Eric's dude. Mm. Yeah, maybe. But who is Vince's dude and who's Eric's dude? Because mm. then if it's Hogan or someone, then that distracts you from everything. That's a point. I just have that in my head of like... Yeah, I know what you mean. He's at the side of yeah, the shot, yeah. and then you've got... Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe it's just a sign of like where they are in, in seating or something. Maybe Eric's getting first class, and, and Vince is still waiting for his coach or something like that. I don't know. I can't mm. imagine Vince ever flew coach at that point, but there we go. So then we have Vince um, going... Mid- to... Midnight, I could. I could believe that. So then we have Vince going to ECW. I think also he should be looking at his financials at that point. And one thing that also I think is significant 
I think someone should say, oh, uh, and don't forget to tell Brett happy 40th. Don't yeah. forget to do something for Brett's 40th. So that's another thing that's getting in his head at that point. So Vince goes to ECW. And what I want is a key line I want in this. I want Paul Heyman to see the truth underneath it. Like This is as comes as close as we get to underlining the, the theme of what's going on. And I want him to maybe have Vince say something like, you know, we've got a few rough talent in the WWF could do with a little seasoning. Maybe we could send them down here or something. And he says, I'll do what I can, Vince, but there's only so much you can do with five muscles and no brain cells, you know, 500 muscles yeah. and no brain cells. Some of it just gets to Vince a little bit, just digs at him a little bit, because you'll, you'll make a World Bodybuilding Federation reference during the whole job interview thing. And I want Paul at some point to say with Jim, to Jim, um, you got to realize. I, you, you know what's one thing I realized though, Jim, having met him and his dad, because he'll say, "Oh, I knew your father," or something like yeah. that, and that can just trigger a little reaction from Vince as well. Because this is the thing. This has been my overriding theory about what the WWE has been. He says, "You realize that the show you you guys have been producing for twenty years is just one guy trying to get over his daddy issues, right?" <laughs> That's just something I want to get in there and i think paul Heyman's the easiest one to do it another thing that should be uh, uh, established here as well is that you know paul Heyman and money is still not a good thing i had this idea because i remember the story of new jack saying he literally chased him around with a knife so you could say you could hear a guy just yelling off screen like he's trying to get through the door and paul's locked it and he says i will have the money for you next yeah. week paul i'm getting the knife don't get the knife I'll have the fort money for you next week. So Vince I knows promise. I've got this guy's got money trouble. So Vince thinks he can use Paul. Paul thinks he can use Vince. Because the final time that we see Paul after this would be Eric Bischoff watching TV in the corner, and there's Paul Heyman as one of the commentators for Raw. And just have Eric go, Oh, I see Vince called his debts in. Or something like that. <laughs> Okay. And the final note that we have uh, when we left it was the Montreal screw job. And one thing I, I want to get in through this is that one of the reasons why that's Vincent like his down deepest, darkest moment is like, it's so wrestling. It's so carny. I thought I was yeah. better than that. He has to protect the thing he loves. He's had to like do it in the fashion that he detests. That he thinks he's above. Yeah. So that was where we were. With some extra notes on top of it. Um, here's some questions I got from a friend of mine who listened to the episode and wants to be referred to as the third man. <laughs> okay. So here are some questions. Uh, what choices of soundtrack would you have? Ooh. Ooh. I couldn't narrow it down for like specific songs, but in terms of like tone, mm. I think um, you want something oh, that conveys like the scrappy adversarial nature of Eric at the start, and then like more. I think a lot rich of it should be like, sounding music. I think a lot of it should be like swaggering cock rock, almost hair yeah. metal stuff. But it also needs to be of its time, which was the late 90s. So you'd think a lot of new metal and Limp Bizkit and stuff like that as well. 
Uh, but I think Vince, when he appears, should maybe be like a classic sort of Rolling Stones sort of track or something. Well, maybe maybe something a bit heavier than that. Maybe ACDC or something like that. Yeah. Um, Bischoff should maybe have a bit more of a swaggering like electro pop sound to him or something like that. I don't know, almost cheesy Japanese city pop or something. Sound a bit fresher than Vince at the start. Yeah. So that was one of his questions. How should it be filmed? Uh, he thought maybe like a documentary style in the form of something like The Thick of It. But I think, in my mind, it's quite a big... Like, the, the film I compare it to the most in my head is Ford v. Ferrari, which is quite classical, traditional cinema, really. Mm. Um, I think that's the way we framed it in our first... Yeah. That's that's how I had it going in, in my but head. But you can well. do a documentary version of it as well. But I don't want it to be necessarily super realistic. I want it to be a bit bombastic and larger than life, and ahistorical because that's kind of one of the issues. issues and that's what wrestling. One of the is. points we had. One of the points we had when um, talking about our story, storyboard in the previous uh, episode is we are trying to cram a decade's worth of history into yeah. a two-hour film. And as a result, we have taken our artistic license. Because of that, I would lean against doing it documentary style. Mm. Because I think if you do it documentary style, you sort of leave yourself open for, well, this didn't happen on this exact day kind of thing, and that criticism. Maybe I'm too cynical, but no, that's just... Again, it's kind of one of those things that's kind of redundant because this film will never get made. But if I wanted to see this story that's being told, if I want to see this story being told, I would rather it be a bit more of an American epic. Um, yes, large. It's larger than life characters and a larger than life story. I can. I think you can have a more stylistic, exaggerated way of filming it that doesn't have to go for the. Now there is a, there is an argument to be made to do wrestling like in the wrestler in a very serious, realistic, documentary-esque style, because that offsets against the pantomime, the theatre of the wrestling, and then you're going into the backstage world, which is where most of this is set, that that should be a lot more realistic and and low-key and gritty. And you can do it that way. You definitely could do it that way. I think if you were going to do something about the territories or something like that, or ECW then that style would be the best one for it. And you could make it work for this. If you're working with a much smaller budget, it's probably what you'd have to do with it. But I think the way that it suits a Vince McMahon-Eric Bischoff biopic, which is what it partly is, as well as a grand statement about America at that time, or the world at that time, then it kind of needs to be grand... There needs to be a grandeur to the filmmaking style, too. I'm with you. Yeah. When you say grandeur as well, I'm in my head. Obviously, there's two different locations um, that I think like Vince's office should be like sh- shot in a way that just makes it appear like a king's quarters. Mm. Um, obviously, I know in real life he had that massive like dinosaur skull <laughs> in his yeah. office at morning. Something akin to that, yeah. not that. Well, you can have a, like, lot... a '90s version of yeah. that. You can have a lot of fun with that when you're introducing Vince through the eyes of Eric Bischoff. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons also why I like the idea of Zac Efron being Bischoff and Hugh Jackman being Vince is that 
Jackman is about six inches taller than Zac Efron as well. Mm. And I think you need that as well. Vince needs to be larger than physically tall, physically yeah. tall, like than stature is physically. Like, it's kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger's T eight hundred against Robert Patrick's T one thousand. Yeah, is a way. Of I'm with you. Putting it. Uh, another question. He, another suggestion he had is that he really wants this idea. Oh, sorry. Eric... sorry. I just wanted to close off that point by um. We talked about obviously the scenes where he'd be Eric would be with Ted Turner in the boardroom. Well, this is the next uh, part he's got. Yeah. Yeah. I was so it might bleed in here. Uh, I was going to say you you want that very very obviously stereotypical clean corporate. Filled with executives, but still looking an empty, empty place to be. Yeah. If that makes sense. Especially when Eric is in isolation. And what the third band was suggesting is that whilst Vin Bischoff isn't getting any respect in that boardroom, you think, oh, he'll be the king in his room, but he's not there either. Again, the inmates running the asylum, that there's wrestlers with their feet on the table, Hulk Hogan going, that doesn't work for me, brother, and, and all that sort of stuff that they are... Whereas in the WWF, there should still be more of a sense of there being a bit more organisation to it all compared to Bishop. Mm. It's a leaner operation, but it's well drilled at that point. Because then you when have... you see then when you see Vince appear in two thousand and three or two thousand and two, whenever it is we see him at the end, it's starting to look a lot more like WCW, at least in the scale of it. There should be a replication of that boardroom mm. table, but now it's the writer's room. And instead of it just being a few guys sat around together and Vince Russo trying to hold court, it's a long table with very nervous young writers who don't know what to say to him. And he's in a position similar to that of Ted Turner, but he doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not producing a better product. Uh, so I have any more notes from the third man on this. Oh, he said Vince should never be seen at home. He should always be at work. I was saying the only thing mm. I could think you could see him at home would be him watching the kennel show and seeing Lex Luger. But other than that, that was the only scene I was thinking you could have him at home. But it's just as logical for him to be in the office anyway. Yeah, in my in my head, when I visualise that scene, he is at his house. But in, in just in general, I find it weird to think of Vince in his house. Mm. Just like... yeah. Not in the film, just as a human being. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I I don't know if he's. I I can imagine there's been like a month, like maybe even a two month period. He hasn't been in his house. Mm. Uh, another idea. Someone said this would work more as a TV series than a show, and I agree. Uh, than a film, and probably then you could go more into the depths of it. I mean, if we're going to include every story beat we've got in this thing, the script's probably going to come out to four or five hours. But I, like I said, I want it to be like a great American movie, or that's what it should aspire to be, <clears> like a like a social network or something like that that tries to define an era and these larger-than-life personalities that in many ways either reflected or literally moulded America to their visions. Uh, and oh, Another thing he said, he really liked Vincent Mann wearing the, the mask in ECW. That was a really popular suggestion. And I said, yeah. I know what mask I want him to wear as well. I want him to wear a psychosis mask. <laughs> because, first of all, psychosis, and second of all, psychosis' mask has two big horns on it. Ah, uh. so that's where we were with those notes. Oh, and a tagline. 
Can you think of a tagline? I I was uh, and a title. The only thing I could think of was the Monday Night War. Some would say I don't know. Maybe you want to have wrestling in the title, but I think the Monday Night War has more intrigue to it. What does that mean? A war that only takes place on Monday nights. Yeah. But it was saying oh. the tagline. The only thing I could say I could think of at that moment was uh, a real fight, or as real as it gets, or something like that. In my head, I've got the greatest battle wasn't between the ropes, or yeah, something like something that. Something like that. Uh, yeah. So let us try quickly to hammer out the final notes of the. Because I think this part will probably be a lot longer than the. Second half. The first half of the film, I think, should be dominated by Vince. And I think the second half of the film, as Vince starts to gain more and more control and is winning the war, I think he should start to fade into the background and then it becomes about Bischoff. Yeah. And how he was ultimately always limited to what he had, but he was the only person that beat Vince at his game, if only for a certain period of time. And because by 99, by the end of 99, there is no competition at that point. They're just there. Yeah. So... Things to be included we've covered so far. Ted Turner's call, the steroid trial, Luger's debut, Hogan's heel turn, and the NWO. Mm-hmm. Breaking the 83-week streak would be the next thing we have to cover. Uh, the Panama City final Nitro episode. Um, Mankind's title win. We've had Nitro giving away the results. We've had the Montreal screw job. Mike Tyson. That's another thing we've got to have. Yeah. ECW. Panama um, Austin City McMahon. thing. Maybe the only time you see Bischoff's house is him watching that from home, just like... I've got an idea for that that I'll get into in a bit. But, um... Oh, and also, these were the ones that we weren't sure if we would include them or not, but we might. Hell in a Cell, Austin breaking his neck, the finger poke of doom, fake Diesel and Razor Ramon, and Billionaire Ted. I definitely think you should have Billionaire Ted. I would include that maybe as part of Vince falling out of, um... Uh, falling out, like losing control. So I would have mm. that be uh, Nitro winning ratings war. Vince offers Brett twenty year contract. Vince does the billionaire Ted sketches. But Nitro gives away results. I'd argue from our maybes. The way we've structured what we're doing here, mm. the only maybe that becomes a definite is the fake razor and the fake diesel, because. Vince could do something like, because obviously we've had the line, they're more trouble than they're worth. Mm. And it's like, okay, they left, but I have the characters, and it was the characters. Maybe. That I, think made... that, I think that could be hard to convey in a shortish period of time, given how minor a detail they are. I think if you're doing the TV version of it, you definitely include it. But how do we say Vince's logic of it, Vince creates them, Vince gets people, it doesn't get over. How do you convey that in what has to take up no more than like 30 seconds to 60 seconds? Because I'll give you an example of something I want to do towards the end as a story beats. I want to do Bischoff gets sacked in May of 99 and he goes away and he doesn't watch wrestling for a while. And then I want you to see as a subtitle April 2000. And that is the one executive, because there's going to be a couple of Turner executives. We want to have one that's sympathetic to Bischoff and one that fucking hates his guts. Yeah, and thinks wrestling's stupid. Thinks wrestling's stupid. And we want the sympathetic one to turn up in April 2000 and say 
and knock on his door and just explain to him what's happened with WCW. We gave it to Vince Russo. It doesn't. It hasn't been working. We need a balance between the two. I think you can be a dream team. What do you reckon? Do you want to take Vince down again? Mm. You see, so that's a subtitle, April 2000. Then you get May 2000. Bischoff is in a room. There is fucking chaos going around him everywhere. And in front of him, you can have Vince Russo like a madman in front of a board with just scribblings everywhere. And he goes, I, I got it, Eric. We make David Arquette the champ. And then, quick cut, subtitled, June 2000, Eric Bischoff's back at home, literally where he was in April 2000 before he was, before he was brought back in. Could have a little thing And where, that just says um, everything about the Russo era WCW that you need to know. In a tiny detail I'd like in that is, in April, his drink's like a, a single, maybe a double. Yeah. In June, when he sat on uh, sat on the couch watching TV, his drinks like it's it's brimmed. It's just brimmed with whiskey, or there's or, more bit. There's a couple more beers. Yeah, maybe it's or like a bigger wife, glass. Yeah, maybe it's his wife and him have just opened a bottle of wine, and then when we come back to them, he's passed out and he's got like three bottles of wine around him or something like that. He just looks haunted, sort of yeah. Vietnam veteran-esque, just like with a bigger drink in his hand. Like. Yeah. Then we can cut to Vince maybe saying, um, I see, obviously the thing with the map is that we want to, we want to see him take that map out, like, like scratch out ECW and WCW and then a look of tears in his eyes. But I was wondering if you could also see the behind his back is a map with all the NFL franchises when he's saying it. But then there's like, how do you, there needs to be something that goes between Bischoff in June of 2000 and Bischoff being contacted again in like January, February, March of 2001 saying it's up for sale. What is WCW? Do you want us to buy it? Do you want to buy it? Because I want Bischoff to be like, we can do this. You won't have anyone else. You get the final say. You get to invest and you get the profits. You get to have the same control that Vince has. And Bischoff's thinking, this is finally my chance. And they say, turn one off their parts. They'll take a part ownership. We keep the TV slot and it's yours and you can do whatever you want. But then you have him turn up at Turner and he thinks he's going to get the deal through. And then he finds out that the slot's been taken just as he's going into the meeting, and who is the guy at the meeting, because the AOL Time Warner merger's happened, it's the fucking pricks executive that didn't like yeah. Bischoff, and he now holds the cards. So he's, he's meant to symbolise all of the corporate backstage fuckery that always was happens. holding Bischoff back, and the, and the disdain for wrestling. Again, wrestling. That's the key into it there. So, um, then what I want is Bischoff... To be nursing, uh, like he stops off at a truck stop or something on his way home. It can have it be that he's driving home and he goes through, because I think he has a place in Montana or something like that. So he's literally driving from Georgia to Montana up in the north. So you have him just, aside of him driving through America. And you can maybe see like little states and you think that you're passing Amarillo, you're passing Dallas, you're passing... And he's driving through where wrestling once was or something like that. And I want him to stop at a truck stop or something like that. 
and he's there, and on the telly is the final episode of Nitro and Raw. Yeah. And that's where he sees Paul Heyman in the commentary booth, and, he says, and so he just mutters to himself, oh, it looks like they got you, they called you debts, Paul, or something mm. like that. Then a trucker sits next to him, and he's watching it, and then he just goes, ain't you that Eric Bischoff? Oh, man, I used to love watching all that growing up. I grew up in Atlanta. I watched the wrestling with the, the, you know, and then they'll just reel off a few names. He says, I never liked that New York stuff. Never liked what them WWF. You could make him say some pretty harsh words, but it's that sense of, yeah. and then he just says, I don't know. Just seems like more and more what I want is going away. And then as he's leaving, I just want him to put on a battered trucker hat where a predominant color on it, but not the only color but a predominant colour on it is red. Mm. And he walks away. You might think that's way too on the nose for what I'm trying to say. But I think there's something in that. Okay. Do you get what I'm, do you get what I'm alluding to there? It's I, I think there's two layers to what you're alluding to there. You're alluding to, obviously, your next see Bischoff on TV. <clears throat> Um, debuting on debuting debuting on Raw, but also there's the whole um, wow, one of the best selling hats in America mm. for the last four years was red, wasn't it? Yeah. So yes, yeah, so it's, it's like an now. omen of things to come. People lose feeling like they're losing something because of what some guy up in New York thinks is and has disdain for everyone else's stuff. Then we do the quick cut, and it's Vince McMahon in a boardroom. He's taking a boardroom meeting, like a conference call, and he's hearing people criticizing him. And he goes, I've, uh, I own 2% of this company, and I think that uh, earns me a few moments of your time, Vince. And just saying things about what he's put his funds into. A football league yeah. that died. You can't keep doing all this. Just no. And ever since. And the ratings just keep have been it falling. simple. Stick to what you know. Stick to wrestling. Yeah, yeah, that something like that. Ratings have been falling every week, and he says. Well, we are a major multimedia empire. We ex- expect to extend into films and distributions. We have a team of writers to match any Hollywood production. Or something like that. And so he leaves from that meeting and he goes in and it's a boardroom. And it is, like I said, it's like the WCW thing. The table's all the way down. WWF has turned into this corporate beast that he, he does and doesn't have full control over now. Like he reaps all the benefits, but he's not got that thing anymore and they could say you're even trying to make up raw and smackdown to make up competition you know we've had to create our own competition with raw and smackdown two different rosters with different competing ones just those sort of things that you can say he's like yeah. he's, he's literally has no more competition he's had to invent competition and then he's like ah no i'm fed up with rick flair in charge of this and i'm in charge of that we're gonna do something different and he says, what, what do we have? Sports franchises. Well, they have general managers or something like that. Yeah. That might be a bit too on the nose because you want the surprise. He goes, I know who to call. And then you have Vince come out. You know, it takes a real son of a bitch to know a son of a bitch. Let me introduce to you the new GM of Monday Night Raw, Eric Bischoff. Bischoff comes out. They hug each other. Vince says... Uh, Bischoff says, you could have done this 13 years ago, saved yourself some trouble, or something like that. Yeah. I keep saying something like that. I apologize. Um, and, yep, yeah, take it away, Vince. And, and Vince lifts his arms up, 
And maybe you can, at that point, the famous moment where after they've hugged and he's held his arms up, you can cut to the photo of the real Vincent Bischoff recreating that pose together on the ramp of Raw. And that's where you go into the text explaining the different things that have happened since then. The last okay. line of which is, Vincent Man will always be remembered as the greatest wrestling promoter of all time. Like that. So it's weird. We're kind of rushing it towards the end, but I honestly think that the 97 to early 98 stuff, 96, 95, 96, 97 to early 98 is the most interesting stuff. And actually, when it does become the hottest thing on TV, I don't have as much to say about it, weirdly. Maybe the thing we're missing is 98 should be more through the perspective of Eric Bischoff. Yeah. And he's trying to do desperately to do things like... Put the title on Goldberg. Goldberg, Hulk Hogan, main eventing. And someone say that should be up for the pay-per-view. We don't have time for Starcade. You save that for your biggest show of the year. We don't have time for that. We need yeah. the ratings now. And, and you know, he's lashing out. Maybe that can be him saying, we need the ratings now. And he's slamming a cup of coffee and that hits Eddie Guerrero. And, you know, that's... <laughs> What's next? What's next week? Well, yeah. and, and, like, comparatively. There's no... Yeah, there's no... You could have Vince going... Um... Here's where like I want and like the calendar's like a few months down the line. Yeah. I mean that seems to be more what Pat Patterson wanted to do now as you look at what Vince is like now. Yeah. Well actually that should be one thing we can say. Vince says, No, we've got to do forget about that now, just what's happening next week. That's all we've got to think about. Again, something that could be hammered home more. Um What else? And then you could have Pat go look trust in the process or something mm. like that. Oh, mm. Um, then we've got, well, I was thinking one thing, like, you could it's do mad Goldberg. That... It's mad, just as a quick aside, that this is the first time we've, in the two ep- two episodes we've talked about this, we've mentioned Pat Patterson's name, when you think about it. Yeah, but I don't know how you can include Pat Patterson without having to, ex- again, it's like the fake Diesel and that, it's yeah. something that you have to explain. You can convey what Vince Russo is very easily. It's Come. yeah. For me, it's trying to unsew my not level of knowledge to yeah. plug it into like a general. Yeah. Seeing it through a general person's eyes, I guess I, I I'm having general... difficulty difficulty getting my words out. You can put a character. Yeah, you can put a character like Vince Russo into any kind of world, really, and it's understandable. You can put there's there's a Vince Russo in TV production. There's a Vince Russo in politics. Oh, Vince, there's... Vince Russo. By his own nature, is turned up to eleven. Try and turn. So Vince Russo at six is like a lot of people's eleven, if you know what I mean. In terms of just like, yeah, vibe. So yeah, like I said, the key characters, the key supporting characters, I think would be people like Paul Heyman. I think Paul Heyman's there to get the theme across, to really explain who Bischoff and Vince are. Maybe have Paul Heyman weirdly undermine Bischoff when they're talking, but by undermining him, he's also giving Bischoff the confidence, maybe un- unintentionally, to go for the job. Mm. Maybe have Bischoff, like he's saying, I can get the job. You probably could. You have no idea. You have, you have no place doing the job, but you probably could do it. Yeah. Because, you know, because you look like Ken, <laughs> like a Ken doll. You're exactly the sort of guy they like. But you got rest- But you can claim that you're a guy from wrestling. You've got a face that fits. Yeah. So that should be it, really. The character deconstruction of Bischoff and Vince should both come from Paul Heyman. Mm. But 
I don't know what else there is to do, really. I think now you've got to... I think we've got the beats, really. The only thing that worries me is that the actual peak of wrestling we're not covering that much. Um... Mm. But maybe we can work that out as we do the scene by scene stuff, really. Yeah. Well, we wanted. Um, we we spoke last time about having the graphics with the ratings and yeah. stuff like that. There's a way of doing it there just to highlight how popular it is. Maybe when we have those graphics, take like other big '90s TV shows there were at the time, and just show them comparatively. Yeah, maybe. Or just show like, them you know on what I mean? TV like, have, like, covers. It's like having like a tracker against. Yeah. So everyone will know uh, what was big in the nineties. Like, yeah. like was Seinfeld the nineties. Seinfeld South Park would probably be the most obvious thing to compare it to because it was also a merch. You should see everyone in public walking around. That's one thing actually. The Vince should see at a WWF shows is more and more people walking around with NWO T-shirts, and then in '98. Eric Bischoff seeing loads of people with Austin 316 t-shirts at Nitros. Yeah. Like, have visually the Austin 316 shirts outnumber the NWO shirts, even though they probably didn't. It's just a way of conveying where it was. Um, yeah, as like a visual. Yeah. Okay. Shall I think you're right. I, I think... We have the framework mm. now. Now it's adding the flesh. Yeah. So what I think we'll do then is between us, before we go to the next recording, we will have the bullet points of every plot point that we sort of discussed in this episode. And then for the next two to three episodes, we will go through each of those bullet points and say what scenes need to happen. To hammer that bullet point home. Yeah. And then... When we've got the scene breakdown, we will establish what needs to happen in each of those scenes and maybe come up with some lines of dialogue that we want to include. Then, after that, we will write a draft and we will maybe read it or organise some sort of reading of it. That's kind of where I think we should go with this. This might take... Sorry, I'm so sorry. I just had a visual in my head of that uh, American Office episode where they find yes. to fret level midnight. Let's let's make sure we do the control find replace properly. <laughs> With that, that's one of my favorite. I I couldn't believe someone made a gag, a plot point out of a little function with Microsoft Word that everyone's probably had to encounter at some point or another. Someone made a gag out of find and replace in Microsoft Word. Love it. That's just beautiful. But until then, we will get our word processors out and list them off. Do you have anything you want to add before we go into the socials, Simon? Ah, well, the socials are even more... Uh, important than they usually are this time, I think, because we would love to hear, as we have from the third man, yeah, other points of view on the, this. It's not just man. our thinking caps we want on, we want your thinking caps on. Just so you know, third man, you are not getting a rising credit. Maybe we'll be <laughs> as an, an associate producer, possibly. Associate to the producer. Yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, Simon, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, free for the number of hours this is probably going to end up being, once we've written it. 
My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Assembly Cuts. <laughs> N for Next Slate. That's my Twitter handle, Facebook, Let's if you put an at gmail.com at the end of it. That's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Get in, and if you fancy shipping us some money so maybe we could even fund this project ourselves without the need of the Hollywood studio system, then go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash lmtyspod. What we will be doing next, theoretically, is a Match of the Week recording where Sting and Lex Luger challenge for the WCW World Tag Team titles from the Steiner Brothers at the first of a Super Brawl in February of 1991. But, let's be honest, we're a couple of days before the new Observer comes out. There's and a couple be of days removed yep. from well, Wrestle no. Kingdom. Yeah, and a couple of days removed. So we're in that meaty sandwich in between. Um... <laughs> So it is almost certain that there's going to be at least one or two, maybe even three weeks worth of Meltzer Five Star episodes coming up in your uh, RSS feed, your subscription feed. By the way, give us a review on iTunes if you can. We are currently at five stars there. If we can keep that up but have more people add to that. And you can't give four and three quarters, so you might as well just round that up. Oh, yeah. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time. today walked out of the apartment without saying a word I ran away from my responsibilities just like I always do and I again am alone here he is hiding in the forest as I told you juggernaut there's to be an ultimate smackdown this Saturday are you going to run from that as well I'll fight anytime anywhere he don't run from fights just from responsibilities What do I do? Juggernaut is my long-lost brother, and yet Congo saved my life in Nam. It's a boy or local!